join me in prayer? God, teach us to wait. Teach us to trust in you. When we're anxious, when we're afraid, help us to lean on you. We pray for our brother Jamie this morning as he brings us your word. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to speak uh, through him to each of us. May we not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's really good to be with you. I'd love it if we could start by just diving in and reading the text this morning. So, Tyler, if you want to put it on the screen. This comes from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. I think the standout line of this account for me is Peter's word to the beggar, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Makes me start brainstorming about what Peter might have that the, the beggar does not. And the obvious answer is two good legs, right? So simply, we might think that the story is about that. The beggar starts the day with two bad legs, and through God's power working in Peter, he ends it with two good ones. Pretty simple, right? I think, however, that something more is at work in the beggar. I think that this account isn't just about his legs. I think it's actually about what's going on in his heart. When Peter speaks the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth over his huddled figure, his body is truly transformed. Yet through that name, he also learns something about God's character in surprising ways that transform his heart as well. As we watch him walk and leap about for the first time, we watch him embrace for the first time who God really is. He's elated to discover for the first time that God the Father is for us. This is not something he knew before. So fundamentally, I think this is what Peter knew that the beggar previously did not. He knew that God cares for us deeply and then acts on it. So therefore, the healing of this man's legs isn't the culminating outcome of this story, I don't think. God used this event to reveal his goodness to this man and thereby invite him into new life, new relationship with him through his son. So in light of this 
Today we'll examine what the beggar learned about God's disposition towards us in the name he hears, Jesus of Nazareth. It can transform our hearts as well, I think. So specifically, we'll look at three things that this man learned about the nature of God's care for us through Peter and John. So first, he learned that God's care for us is personal. Second, he learned that it is unbounded. And third, that it exceeds our expectations. So we'll look at these one by one. First, God's care for us is personal. The beggar finds himself in a predicament at the beginning of the narrative. He is an afterthought in this community. He's isolated. Luke tells us that a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a really impersonal description, right? Who are they? Luke's rather slapdash description of these couriers implies that their identities don't actually really matter that much. He's suggesting that the people who carry this man regard him mostly as a daily chore and nothing else. Contrast this, say, with the description of the paralytic's four friends from the Gospels who are willing to do just about anything to see their friend get help. And that includes dismantling a stranger's roof. That is not as accepted in our culture today, so don't do that. Uh, But this kind of friend, the beggar simply does not have. It's not evident whether anyone genuinely invests in his well-being because everyone keeps a safe distance from him. And yet, this lifetime of detachment and isolation is undone completely in one unexpected encounter. The cripple asks Peter and John for alms according to his normal routine, And then in verse 4, Luke reports something odd. He says, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. What? That's an unexpected turn indeed. Nobody pays attention to this guy, remember? Yet the the Greek verb that uh, Luke uses here for gaze is emphatic. It means to be attentive, to be focused or locked in. This is more a consideration in two seconds that anybody, than anybody has given this man in years. At most, he's received some piteous passing glances and perhaps some spare change. But then Peter does one better. He goes further and encourages this man to reciprocate. He says, look at us. He invites the beggar to see and be seen, or somehow to relate to them. Now, this seemingly small detail shows the beggar nothing less than the character of God. And we know this because the disciples are here imitating what Jesus did for them. Recall what Forrest talked about with the first chapter of Mark, how Jesus saw Peter fishing, and he went over to him, he chose him, he dignified him. Peter must have been thinking in that moment, why does Jesus want me? I'm not qualified, I'm not impressive, I'm not really worth his time. Yet Peter would come to learn that Jesus valued him unconditionally, not for his resources, not for his competencies, not for anything else. This lesson, now Peter gets to pass along to the beggar. By stopping and locking eyes with him, Peter assures him that God's interest in us is anything but casual and passing. It's focused, and it is personal. He will not pass us by, but will stop in his tracks to listen to us, declare our need, and then to begin his restorative work. So point number one is this. Be comforted this morning 
that God thinks you are worth his time and his energy. His eyes are locked on you because you are precious to him. Second, this encounter reveals that God's care for us is unbounded. The beggar's predicament has another dimension to it. He's perpetually stuck outside of the temple wall. Uh, Verse 2 says, uh, they laid him daily at the gate of the temple to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Now, the rabbinic law forbade that people of various ailments enter this place, and likely for one reason or another, this guy falls into that category. So, this is especially problematic for him, though, because in first century Judaism, the temple is considered the distinctive place where God could be met. It's where God hangs out. So essentially, the beggar is excluded from communing with God in the ways that other Jews can. He's held outside of that which society considers sacred. And he's not allowed to hang out where people assume God hangs out. But here again, God uses Peter and John to show the beggar what he's really like. He transcends the supposed barrier of the temple and manifests his presence and his power outside of it. This shows the man that in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the place where God can be met is now unconfined by any boundary. The irony of the story is that God's presence and his restorative work aren't enclosed within high walls or majestic monuments or anything we'd expect. They're found most tangibly in the unassuming appearance of two fishermen. This shows us, and it shows the beggar, that God hangs out where we would never think to look. He shows up in the places we'd never expect to find a God at all. Places of no grandeur, places of no potential, or even places of no hope. This is because the Father's love for us is unlike any love that we've experienced. It is ceaseless, and it is determined. It's going to stop at nothing to find us. So today you might find yourself in a circumstance where you don't expect to encounter God. You might be thinking, God won't come to me because of X. Well, the good news of this story is that no matter what X might be, you don't believe that voice for a second. Nothing, nothing will keep him from you. Not your nagging doubts, not your stress about schoolwork, not anxiety, not depression, not a sinful habit you can't kick, not anything. So ask yourself, where's the place in your life that you feel isolated from God? The news of the story is, God hangs out there. In fact, he was there before you even got there. And he's been waiting for you there, with loving arms wide open. Finally, through Peter, Jesus shows the beggar that his care for us exceeds expectation. In other words, he provides for us more abundantly than we could ever reasonably hope. See, the beggar's predicament has yet another dimension. He doesn't know what he can or what he should beg for. Though he asks for alms, he has to know, he has to know that these will only get him so far. He might receive enough spare change to make it to tomorrow. And if he does, he'll go right back where he came from and repeat. He'll do it again. He's continually asking for that which will only perpetuate a dismal and a hopeless cycle. 
he's placed limiting expectations on his own well-being. And we can hardly blame him for this, because he has only ever encountered limits. Limits in people's ability and in their interest to actually aid him. And this is a portrait of what life can look like without the hope of Christ. Without the hope of something that exceeds what we can provide for ourselves. You do the routine so that you can keep doing the routine, and then eventually you stop because you die. It's bleak. In this miraculous encounter, though, the routine is broken. It's obliterated. God shows this man that in relationship with his son Jesus, limiting expectations may be done away with entirely. In his care, all things, all things will be made new. The cripple hoped to receive pity. He never thought to hope to receive love from Peter and John. He hoped to receive money. He never thought to hope to receive a new life. He hoped to receive some crumbs, and he never thought to hope for wholeness, both physically and in unity with God. Because once God heals his legs, this man embraces an even fuller offer of wellness. He doesn't just use his legs to walk away. He turns right back into the temple, praising God and leaping around. And then further, in the events that follow our text, he sticks around again. As Peter and John preach about this Jesus of Nazareth, he clings to them in order to learn about the saving work that his newfound deliverer had accomplished on a cross. In other words, he responds relationally to God in light of the care he's received from him. The beggar asked for alms, he was given his legs, but then he discovered that the gift was in fact a lot more than even that. This Jesus of Nazareth had in fact cleansed him of all sin and given him eternal life in right relationship with God. Now that is way more than he began the day hoping for, isn't it? And that's the point. That's what God does. So the question the beggar's experience leaves before us is, what do you hope for? What do you ask for? If we examine ourselves, we might find that like the beggar, our expectations are too low and our plans misguided. Yet we're here invited to discover that God through his son is far more generous than we would ever give him credit for. We're invited to relinquish our own blueprints for thriving and to trust God to exceed our expectations. The gifts that he imparts to us are more fulsome and more abundant than anything we'd think to hope for otherwise. But you might object and say, well, why should I relinquish my blueprints? I think I have a pretty good plan. I say that a lot, quietly. <laughs> Fortunately for us, God's capacity for this abundant provision isn't an abstract concept. Rather, it's so trustworthy because it's rooted in history, like Mindy was saying, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. His resurrection is the seal that signifies God's ability and God's intent to reclaim and recreate everything that is. It is resurrection power that enables Jesus to heal the beggar's legs. It's resurrection power that also enables Jesus to heal this man's heart. And it is resurrection power that gives us hope for lasting renewal in the midst of any predicament. 
Peter knew this well, and he wrote about it in his first epistle, and he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So like Peter saw, and like the beggar saw, let us come see the fullness of good that is extended to us by our caring Father. Let us stake our hopes on this Jesus Christ of Nazareth, through whose death and resurrection we receive a new life, flooded with hope and overflowing to an inheritance in heaven. Let us not look for what is fleeting, but for what lasts. Not for what we want to receive necessarily, but for what God wants to give. And let us not ask for little pieces, but ask to be made whole. Because God will not disappoint in this. His care for us is personal. It is unbounded. And it exceeds our expectation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.